Ah, the book of Job. I know there are many people wondering why. Why in the world, out of all the books of the Bible, and, and, and in fact that we certainly could spend the rest of our lives just studying through the New Testament, why is it we're going to jump into the Old Testament? And as we're jumping into the Old Testament, why in particular the book of Job? Now, I would imagine Job is one of those books that you either love a great deal or you try to avoid. Uh, loving it a great deal because it really does teach us all kinds of things about the greatness and the depth and the glory of our God and our relationship to him. Uh, but at the same time, understanding it's not one of the easiest books in the Bible. It just flat is not. And uh, so some of you may be sitting here wondering this morning why I've decided to go here, and I've done this pretty much on my, my own. I, I've asked people to help me, you know, where do you believe God would have us go first? And a few people have mentioned uh, uh, books to me and, and that sort of thing. But I'll just be honest with you this morning. The reason I'm going here to the book of Job is this, is because I've tried to avoid it as much as anybody else, but God just keeps bringing me back to it. I'm standing here convicted this morning that we're going here, not because it's something I've determined we needed to do, because I thought you might learn some things from it, but I really believe that we're going here this morning because this is where God has brought us to, that this is the book that he would have us study. Now, as always, to be completely and absolutely faithful to all the teachings of the book, there's only one way to do that, and that would be to do it verse by verse, as we've just finished up in the book of Romans, as we did the book of Revelation a few years ago. And as always has been our practice the whole time that we've been here at Springs Presbyterian Church to preach through books. The reality is this, is we know if we do that with a book of Job, you and I probably will never get out of it. <laughs> Seriously, there's a good chance that, uh, you, you know, that we would just never, ever make our way through it in the time that we have. So we are going to do a selective study through the book of Job and try to hit as many of the higher points as we possibly can. So if you're good with it, we're going to proceed. And we are actually going to start at the very beginning, which I think is always a good place to start. For a lot of reasons, one of those is, uh, is, is what is said in the beginning, really sets the tone and the pace and et cetera for what follows, typically uh, in things that are written, not just in the Bible, but in, in things in general. But we read these words from I'm going to call it the gospel according to Job. And as time goes by, you probably will come to understand why I say that. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, why the males are not mentioned, I don't know, and very many servants, and that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house 
uh, of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about when the days of feasting had uh, had uh, completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Just uh, Thus Job did continually. One of the things I just want to bring to our attention is something that we always need to be cognizant of anytime we're studying the Bible. And that is there needs to be a question that, uh, that overgirds everything that we study and etc. Uh, and one of those is this. This, I would say, is the premier, primary question for every believer, is, and that is, how does this particular book help us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does it reveal to us about our Savior? How does it uh, help us to come to know Almighty God better and deeper and more reverently? And I would say to you as we begin this particular study that Job contributes a lot to all of that. What is Job known for? Well, one of the things, probably the, the principal thing that Job is noted for is a man who suffered a lot. Who suffered a great deal. And as we begin our study of this book, I just want to bring attention to this. As we study the life of Job, it helps us to understand particular things about our Savior to a greater degree. And one of those principal things is this, is suffering. That there's a sense in which we know Christ is a suffering servant. But at the same time, we understand that there's a sense in which Job was almost like a pre-Christ suffering servant. We live in a time when people believe that suffering should be absolutely eliminated in every way possible. That suffering, for most people, has no place in the life of a human being. That suffering is a bad thing. It's a terrible thing. It's an awful thing. It leads to no good and no benefit to anyone. Now, let me tell you something. That whole mindset is anti-Christian. There's a sense in which our religion is based upon the necessity of suffering. Now we see Christ as a suffering servant, but at the same time we see Job almost as a pre-Christ suffering servant. Jesus was entirely innocent of any wrongdoing. Period. His suffering was absolutely, totally unjustifiable, unjustified. Well, 
We'll talk more about Job in just a few minutes, but we need to understand something. And that is, as we unfold this book, we also all, we always have to have in mind the infallible rule of interpreting slash understanding Scripture. And that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So we can't come to any conclusions about Job or anything the book of Job concludes without sifting it through the rest of the Bible. Just as we do everything else we study in the Bible. And as we do that, we're probably going to come to some very different conclusions that we would otherwise. There is a sense in which suffering is the only way by which we learn particular things. Very important, essential, and critical things we do not know, we do not understand, apart from our own personal suffering. Suffering is a way of life. There's always been suffering in the world ever since the Garden of Eden. Man brought suffering upon himself. And as we said before, we live in a day when very often the mindset is suffering needs to be absolutely eliminated as much as possible from our lives. But again, I reiterate, there are certain things that you and I will, certain necessary things that you and I will not learn apart from suffering. Just an example of that would be our utter and absolute dependence upon God for everything. We don't do well with prosperity. None of us do. Because it's easy for that sinful nature to enter in the picture and begin to encourage us that we have what we have and we have the blessed life that we have because we deserve it. That somehow we have earned it. Very often we look upon Job and we're just mystified that he suffered as he did. Because you could describe Job as a man after God's own heart, easily. The Bible doesn't do that, but it would be not very difficult for us to come to that conclusion when we study the things that are here in this particular book. We need suffering. Don't like it. Don't want it, but that doesn't necessarily mean we don't need it. Job is, according to some scholars, could very well have been the very first Old Testament book that was actually written. Now, the events were later on. But as far as writing those events down, there are some scholars who believe that it was the very first book penned before even the Pentateuch. But ultimately, we don't know for certain when it was written. We also don't know for, really have any idea who wrote it. But it's been received as scripture now through the generations for thousands of years. 
part of God's holy writ. It would be nice if Jesus mentioned Job somewhere, but he never did. Even though Job is mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament. So, I mean, in the New Testament. So with that in mind, I just want to strike down the idea that some people have that this book was about a completely fictitious person, that, that Job actually never really lived, that it's just a poem about a guy that was completely made up by the author in the story that unfolded was completely fictitious, not based upon reality or facts. But the fact that he's mentioned in the book of James and one other place in the New Testament tells us this, that the scripture itself receives him and understands him to be a real person that actually lived in real time. And that the circumstances that are described in the book were historical fact. They really happened. It is classified in as far as the categories of the Old Testament go as poetry where you would find Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Now, I don't know about you, but I always have been taught that poetry was where you rhymed words with one another. <laughs> uh, you know, I think we probably, most of us have that idea, and that really is not what poetry is at all, that poetry is just simply a narrative or whatever that is presented in the form of verses. So there's a sense in which the whole Bible is a poem. Because it's presented to us in verses. It's quite possibly, unless you include the whole Bible, it's quite possibly the longest poem that's ever been written. <laughs> line after line after line. I forget exactly how many, like 5,000 lines of verse in this book. I particularly don't care for poetry myself. I've never been a poet fan or poetry fan. Uh, even though I actually had a reputation years ago among the kids of being able to rhyme all kinds of things. I had little ditties I did with the kids all the time and uh, you know it was just bouncing word off of word and that kind of thing. Uh, but as far as sitting down and reading poetry from a book on a regular basis, I ain't the guy. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's just not in my realm of likes and loves. Okay, as far as the land of us goes, not a clue much where it is or was. Uh, that's one of the reasons why some people say this must be fictitious is because there's no record of a land named Uz we find in other documents, ancient documents. However, the Bible does say something about this. We know that very often places were, were named after particular people. Uh, therefore, it seems as though uh, a likely origin of, of this would be the place called Edom, which is where the descendants of Esau resided. When Jacob and Esau separated, Jacob established Israel. 
Esau established Edom. There actually is a, a man's name that appears in the genealogy of Esau named Uz in Genesis chapter 36, verse 28. So as much, uh, as likely as anything else, that is where the name of this land originated. And one of the most amazing things is this, that if that is true, Job was a descendant of Esau, not a descendant of Jacob. So there you have that. He is described here as being blameless. Upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Some people want to interpret that as Job was perfect. Job was a sinless man. He always did what was right. He always thought what was right. He never did anything wrong in his whole years of existence. This is where it's very important for us to always remember that infallible rule of interpreting Scripture, and that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. We need to live it, we need to apply it, because if you do, you're going to come to very different conclusions about particular things that you would otherwise. When I'm telling you this is when we weigh that statement that Job was blameless in the balance of Scripture, we have to understand it doesn't mean that Job never did anything wrong or never thought anything bad. As we've just been studying through the book of uh, Romans, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we cannot understand that Job was a sinless man because Scripture does not allow us to do that. Suffering brings us some advantages. And let me just say this, that very often suffering is the soil from which faith springs forth. I would imagine some of you would attest to that from your own testimony. There was a time of great suffering on your part that you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and the gospel. But let me say this, Christians never needlessly suffer. In other words, there is always intention, God's intention in whatever suffering we endure. There is a purpose for it. There's a necessity of it. It may not be clear to us, but it is very clear to our Heavenly Father. 
And let me just say this, that ultimately the goal of everything that has anything to do with us is the glory of God. So just remember this, and this may be very helpful to you, and that is that when you are suffering, especially when you are suffering what is very apparently to be unjust suffering, understand that your Father will be glorified through some mechanism by that. So we must understand something, and that was that Job is not intended to be understood to be this sinless person. We know that there's a sinless person, right? And that's Jesus, and he's the only one that is, or ever has been, or ever will be. So Job was not an absolutely perfect man. But with that said, he was a stellar man. He was a man who stood out as, as being above everybody else. He was one to be admired and respected by those around him. He was an honorable man. Not perfect. But maybe as close to perfect as a sinful person can be in all of history. Not only doing what was right and good and what is right and good, but doing it for the right reasons. Not for his own glory, not for his own admiration, There's a sense in which Job's life is a signpost with Job pointing to God. He is the one. He is the honorable one. He is the one to be respected. He is the one to be glorified. And Job stands as a challenge to every one of us. Because there's a sense, you know, as we're studying for the, through the book of Romans, that you and I know a little bit more about the big picture than Job did. I mean, Jesus is coming to the picture. There's a sense in which we have a greater understanding than Job did in regard to these things. Certainly a greater understanding of the means by which salvation would come. But one of the things we're going to find as we go through the book of Job is this, is with Job completely in the dark as it comes to Jesus, and I would say to you, no. I know that my Messiah lives and that he will stand upon the earth. One of the earliest books written in the Old Testament. Some people have the idea that the Christian faith and the whole thing with Christ is strictly a New Testament thing. That is hogwash. One of the things that should encourage you and I to, to believe in what we believe is this, is the, 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 the picture of the Messiah is painted very early in the, age, the pages of, the, of Genesis and, and as well this book of Job that was written very early on. Jesus there. 
And I want to caution you about something. People have the idea that you could look in the Old Testament, you can find Jesus behind every tree and, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is this, is the coming Messiah is one of those golden threads that holds the whole Bible together, starting with Genesis and running all the way through Revelation. One of those golden threads. It brings it all together. So what I would say to you is one of the things that Job ought to encourage you and I to do, because we have this special relation and not, uh, relationship and knowledge of God, to live in a manner that is worthy of that. To be different than the people around us. Not consumed with ourselves. Not caring most of all about whatever happens to affect me. And Job could easily be described as a man who was after God's own heart, just as David was. And it would be awful nice if people around us could say the same thing about us. God blessed Job unbelievably. In every way that the, the, the world, perhaps, would think people could be blessed. Had seven sons and three daughters. Seven, as most of you know, is a special number in Scripture. Represents completeness or perfection. Established very early on in the scriptures with the uh, seven days of creation. Represents perfection, absolutely. So anytime you go through scripture and you see that number seven, it should stand out. Not just any number. It's a special number. Psalm 127, 4 and 5 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. How well do you think that message goes forth into this world today? Do people really and truly on, on the average see children as a blessing Unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence that there are a good number of people who see them every, as everything but that. It just All you have to do is just consider abortion. You don't even have to think about anything else. But does, does the world today see children as a blessing from God? We know that Job did. Job knew them to be one of the greatest blessings that God had bestowed upon him. How do we know that? We know that because he interceded for them before God on a regular basis. We'll get more into that in just a few minutes. 
But he did that. He loved his children and he wanted them to know God as he knew God. That was one of his primary focuses in life. That the faith that he had in God would be something that he would pass on to his children. That, in fact, would be their inheritance. Some distinctions here between the other patriarchs. Or who we call the patriarchs would be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? Primarily. God blessed them all very greatly with wealth, just as he did Job. But even Abraham, I don't think, was blessed as much as Job was in light of that. But one of the distinct features here is this, is Job lived in an established place. The others were nomads. All three of the patriarchs were nomads. They moved from place to place to place to place. Abraham never owned any property in the promised land except for the field and the cave at Machpelah, where they, which they used for a family burial tomb. That was it. Job had great possessions. He lived in one place. He didn't move around like a nomad. Wealth in the ancient Near East very often was established by your physical possessions of land and livestock. Not so much gold and silver. Sometimes that entered the picture, but very often the measure of a man's real wealth was how much land he owned and how many animals he had. It's hard to imagine a flock of 7,000 sheep. Can you imagine the pasture land that was necessary to take care of all those sheep? And not only 7,000 sheep, but 3,000 camels. 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Can you imagine the immensity of the holdings that Job had to have just to make sure all of those animals got fed on a regular basis? God blessed Job very much in that manner. Well, one of the things about the world around us today, and I guess it's been part of the world in general all along, and that is people really believe that wealth is the, the solution to every worry and want and desire and the fulfillment of everything possible. I mean, how often is wealth or the, the passion or desire for wealth the, the primary motivating factor behind what very great number of people do? People want more and more and more, and it seems like people are never satisfied. I don't know many wealthy people, but most of the wealthy people that I have known through the years, what I saw in their life was they, they were not satisfied with what they had, that what they were doing is trying to amass more and more wealth just in case something happened, and they might lose some of what they've got. 
very often they are not what I would consider to be very joyful, fulfilled people. There are exceptions to that. Job was an exception to that. But the fact of the matter is, is people generally don't do wealth very well. Not well at all. That very often wealth is something that divides people or separates people from God rather than bringing them closer to him. Because of our sinful nature, the more we have, the more highly we think of ourselves. The more we become a God unto ourselves. And I say that knowing full well that there are exceptions to it. I'm just talking about people in general. Our importance of ourself is inflated above everybody else, etc., etc., etc. There's a sense in which wealth encourages people to become their own God. Job was an exception to that. He did wealth, and he did wealth very, very well. Why? Because they had a deep-rooted relationship with God. Because he understood some things, and one of those is this, is whatever blessings he had, they were gifts from God. Not only his possessions, but his children. And in knowing that, he understood something. That they were granted to him for God's glory, not his own. Very few people do wealth very well. It tends to corrupt people. But apparently Job was an exception. He managed to keep everything in the proper perspective, it seems. God first, above and beyond everything else. His family second. His possessions third, perhaps. One of the things that we always have to remember as Christians is this, is our blessings, our real blessings don't come in this life. They come in the life to come. That the wealth that we are promised, and let me just say to you this morning, that you are promised wealth as a believer. But it is not material wealth. It is spiritual. Spiritual wealth, in a sense, which is far more valuable than material wealth is. That your promise and your gift from God is the eternal new heavens and new earth. This is not your home. This is a place where God has us now for a time. And we know this, unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, that eventually we will go the way of death. And when we do that, we will enter to a place that Jesus himself describes as paradise. As believers, we cannot live as, li as if our life in, uh, exists in this world and then it ends when we die. 
Very often we continue to allow uh, death to cause fear in our hearts. We should not. I'm not telling you that you should run out into the road and beg to have a car run you over. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying here is this, is death should not scare the bejeebies out of you like it used to. There's a sense in which death for us is a blessing. It's a time of leaving the old behind and very much of that old rubbish, garbage stuff that held us back and held us down behind so we can move ahead with full vigor and commitment into eternal life in paradise. So there's a sense in which you are a very wealthy person. Not all people are. You may not have two nickels to rub together. But when push comes to shove, if you're a believer, you are wealthy beyond imagination. With a wealth that is far more important than the wealth this world has to offer. You're not just a millionaire or a billionaire. You're way beyond. Way beyond. You can't even describe it. How wealthy, how rich God has made you. In the things that really do matter. What we find in Job in relationship to his children are a couple of very important theological issues that are going to come to light in just a few minutes. Well, but you know, Job's me uh, measure of wealth was not just in material possessions, but also in his family. Some things you can say about, about his family was this, is they obviously were close to one another. They, the brothers... And the sisters, they obviously loved one another, cared about each, each other. And, you know, they had these regular feasts where each one of the brothers, taking turns, would host these feasts. And the family would come and be a part of that. The family understood that family was important. That is a dying notion in today's culture. For many, many generations, family has been kind of the central thing in the lives of most people. And today, family is just falling kind of by the wayside. And our culture is hurting terribly as a result of it. You and I are suffering because of it. Because the love of family is more or less dying in the lives of so many people. A family is no, no longer one of the central things in people's lives. It was becoming more and more apparent and more and more clear that the primary central thing in the lives of most people is me, myself, and I. That's what the vast majority or a lot of people today think. The only thing they care about is what affects me. They don't care too much about what happens to other people. The only thing they care about is what happens to me, myself, and I. 
What we're seeing today is anarchy. It is a result of that mentality. I mean, what we're seeing today, really, in this land, this land that God has set aside, that has given us great freedoms and privileges that no people on the face of the planet have ever come to have, not to the degree that you and I have had them, they are being threatened today. There are people who want to take away your freedom of speech. There are people who and they want to shut you up. They don't want to hear anything you have to say about anything. Your opinion to them does not matter one iota. As a matter of fact, they don't want to hear it. And the best thing in their personal opinion would for you to be shut up entirely and completely and stop talking about God and Jesus and what is morally right, and what is morally wrong. They don't want to hear it. But the family unit is falling apart in this culture. And it's a direct example of what happens when people turn away from God. They care about themselves. What I'm telling you is very often today, parents care more about themselves than they do their kids. They don't care so much about what's going to happen to their children after they leave the picture. What they care most about is what's going to happen to me before I leave the picture. That cannot be us. As I alluded to a few minutes ago, there are a couple of very important theological threads that begin to be sowed through this book at this point. Prefigurings of Jesus Christ. One of those is what we would call intercession. Job, in essence, intercedes here on part of his children. He gives these sacrifices on a regular basis. with the idea of atoning for any sins that they may have committed. You understand in these days there were no priests. There were no Levitical priests. Now that stuff had actually happened yet. But you see her Job acting, serving as a priest-like person in the lives of his children. He intercedes before the throne of grace on their behalf. Sorry. So how does that work for you and I? Well, my challenge for this morning is how often do you pray for your kids? How often do you bring your children and their children before the throne of grace? Is prayer for your kids a priority in your life? Whether they believe or they don't believe. You 
You understand that there's still this sense. Job understood this, that there's a place for intercession on the part, on the behalf of other people, especially those people you love the most. But we know ultimately this pointing to the great intercessor, Jesus Christ himself, who intercedes as we speak right now. He's in heaven now. He's left the earth, but he's not sitting there doing nothing. He is in the heavenly throne room, and he continues to intercede on your behalf before God the Father. Lifting your name before God the Father. The other thing is atonement. To pay the price. So there's a picture of atonement here because Job is sacrificing animals. It's before the Old Testament law was written down with the animal sacrifices. He sees a place for bloodletting. He must know somehow that the, the shedding of blood is the only means by which sins can be forgiven. We're all familiar with the Old Testament law and all those, those laws about animal sacrifices, etc., etc., etc. Isn't it nice that you and I didn't have to bring a goat to church with us this morning? That we don't have blood splattering all over the place up here around the altar? Because we understand this, that this sacrifice has been made. And that sacrifice is Jesus. And there's a picture of Jesus beginning to evolve already in this book. And that will develop more and more to the point that Job at one point will, just, will claim, I know that my Messiah lives and he will stand upon the earth. See, I hope for all of this that we will all be challenged. Because God has revealed a great deal to us. As we said before in the book of Romans, as we were considering all it had to say, is that there's a sense in which we know more than anybody ever has. Because we don't just have the scriptures, we also have thousands of years of church history. We have all those benefits. Job lived life to the full. And obviously with glow, oh Job, the greatest thing was God's glory. And he knew that life was not his to do with whatever he just wanted to. He knew that life itself was a gift from God. And all the things that came with it.
Job is mentioned twice in the New Testament. Acknowledged to be a great man of faith. A man that you and I can learn a lot from. A man that you and I hopefully will learn a lot from. And grow in our own faith in that Messiah. And live in a manner that will set us apart from people in general. There could be no greater thing than for someone to say of you, you have truly a very great heart for God. We're going to, I always want to say celebrate, but we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's not a very good thing there, but we're administering the Lord's Supper this morning.